ruminant meats and ripe fruit is probably what we were kind of, I want to say, born to eat uh, and try. Unbelievable benefits. Check out this review on Mood, Memory, and Brain from Heart and Soil Supplements. I take Mood, Memory, and Brain because I suffer from adult ADHD. A major stressor and symptom I've dealt with has been intense cravings for caffeine, nicotine, and sweets. I decided to give Mood, Memory, and Brain from Heart and Soil a shot to see if it would help my overall focus and stress levels. Alongside those benefits, and to my surprise, at multiple servings, it significantly alleviated addictive cravings. The stuff is very profound. I would recommend buying a batch to anyone looking to help uh, alleviate physical withdrawal symptoms of caffeine, nicotine, or other substances and ADHD focus symptoms. I also take prescription stimulant medication for ADHD. There have been days where I've had to go off the medicine and many people warn me that taking breaks uh, could lead to withdrawal symptoms or mood decline. Perhaps that would be true, but on those days, I take multiple servings of mood memory and brain and experience no withdrawal or mood decline. This is accompanied by an animal-based diet. In my personal experience, taking this supplement alongside medicine or without it has shown me great cognitive benefits and has helped to alleviate a great burden. I thank uh, God for Dr. Paul and the team over at Heart and Soil. Thank you guys and keep up the great work. If you guys listened to my podcast with Tommy Wood a few months ago, or even in this podcast with Georgie, I mentioned this, but desiccated cow brain seems to be very beneficial for people in controlled studies, interventional studies for cognitive decline. And this re result has not been replicated with plant-based phosphatidylserine. So there's things in the brain, whether it's hormones, pregnenolone, I'll talk about all this in the podcast with Georgie, but Moon Memory and Brain, super powerful for all this kind of stuff. You can find it at heartandsoil.co. In this podcast, we also talk about histamine and immune, or if you want more stearic acid in your diet, you can get Firestarter from Heart and Soil. You can find all of them at heartandsoil.co. Our mission is to help you reclaim your birthright to radical optimal health, and we're very proud to be doing it. On this week's podcast, I have Georgie Dinkov, my friend, back on the show. And we talk about all kinds of good stuff. This is the second podcast I've done with Georgie. So you can refer to the first one if you want more of a deep dive into all of these ideas. We talk about serotonin. We talk about SSRI drugs, selective serotonin reuptake drugs, and how increasing serotonin, whether by irritating the gut or eating too much soluble fiber, perhaps, or twisting or too much running or endotoxin or SSRI drugs and other drugs could and appears to lead to pretty negative behavioral effects for humans, anhedonia, et cetera, all kinds of problems. And the mainstream medical model is that SSRI drugs are what we should use to treat depression. Your eyes will be opened in this podcast as we start with serotonin. Then we move to gut stuff. What irritates the gut? What causes endotoxin to go up? LPS, lipopolysaccharide. We get into some easy tools to use, how you can tell if your metabolism is working well. I talk about specific labs you might wanna check prolactin, lipopolysaccharide binding protein, et cetera, and how to check your morning pulse and temperature. Then we get into a little bit of discussion around an overarching framework of health. We talk about the benefits of desiccated organs, regenerating the thymus, which involutes, which shrinks as we age with desiccated thymus or fresh thymus. Really, really interesting stuff. We close the podcast talking about excipients, compounds that end up in supplements or other foods that can be harmful for our gut as well. So this one is jam-packed with information. We're going to do a part three with Georgie coming soon, but this one, I mean, buckle up. You will learn so much in this podcast. Uh, I definitely did. So thanks to Georgie for coming on and enjoy the podcast, guys. I want to give a shout out to my other sponsors who make this show possible. I want to start with Kalima Sea Salt. You can go to drpaulsalt.com to get your free bag. You guys know that I am no fan of microplastics 
And every year, humans dump 8 million tons of plastic garbage into the ocean, which sucks because that's where your table salt comes from. That garbage breaks down into microplastics, which end up in your salt so much of the time. 90% of all salt tested has microplastics, but not Kalima sea salt. I've seen the microscopic analysis, no microplastics in there. It is free of ocean-borne microplastics. Like I said, you can get your first bag free at drpaulsalt.com. It's freaking delicious, super crunchy. It's really my favorite salt. And it's hand-harvested from the Kalima salt flax in Mexico. So you'll be supporting the Salineros by purchasing this. It's 100% natural, unrefined, handmade, hand-harvested sea salt, none of the junk, none of the anti-caking agents we talk about in this podcast with Georgie. Check it out. Go to drpaulsalt.com to get your free bag of Kalima sea salt. Also want to give a shout out to my friend Monsel, sacredhunting.com front slash Paul. So I've been on two hunts with Monsel. If you're thinking about getting into hunting, I would highly recommend checking out Sacred Hunting. And uh, listeners of this podcast can get $250 off their trip by mentioning my name. There are two dates set up for listeners of this podcast, March 16 to 19, 2023, and April 13 to 16, 2023. You will learn the basics of how to track, stalk, kill, field dress wild game animals, but Monsel is amazing. He adds a ritual and Native American component that makes it a rite of passage. Like I said, I've been on two hunts with Monsel. On one of them, I killed a deer with a bow. On another, I killed a black buck antelope with a rifle, and they were both amazing experiences. Great people on both of these hunts. Really good quality food. Monsel's very tuned into quality of food and a very I would say relaxing, centering experience. It's almost like a combination of a meditation retreat and hunting, if you can imagine that. But um, there's a lot of uh, play and exploration in the wilderness. So go to sacredhunting.com front slash Paul. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy this. Last but not least, I want to give a shout out to my friends at Let's Get Checked. This podcast is sponsored by them. You can find them at trylgctrylgc.com front slash Paul Saladino. That's my whole name. That will get you 25% off ordering your blood work at home, which is pretty cool. So the question that I would like to ask you is, are you the man your father was? We know that testosterone levels are declining since the 1990s, about an average of 1% per year. We talk about some of the reasons why in this podcast with Georgie, microplastics, excess estrogen in our environment, all kinds of things, nutrient deficiencies, but you won't know unless you get your male hormone levels checked. This is where Let's Get Checked comes in. So you can get your male hormones, including testosterone, checked at home. In this podcast with Georgie, I talk about testosterone, we talk about blood work, and most of the tests we mention can be done at home through Let's Get Checked. Certainly total testosterone can, and that is a really good marker for cardiovascular disease as we talk about. Um, so how does it work? You go online and you order your kit. You can order a male hormone test kit. They also have CRP, CBC, CMP, a number of options. You take the test, which is sent to you in discrete packaging, and send it back to Let's Get Checked via quick shipping. Once a sample arrives in the laboratory, confidential results will be available from your secure online account in two to five days. The results are reviewed by a clinician and a member of the Let's Get Checked nursing team may call you to review the results. Let's Get Checked labs are CLIA approved and CAP accredited, which is the highest level of accreditation. So if you want to get your male hormones checked or your hormones in general checked without having to leave home, visit trylgctrylgc.com front slash Paul Saladino and get 25% off your test using code Paul Saladino. All right, guys, on to the podcast. Georgie, thanks for coming back on the podcast. <laughs> thanks for inviting me again. Hopefully we're not boring your listeners. They're getting <sighs> just fully out of it. 
I don't think we're boring anybody. It's definitely going to be another technical conversation. So if people are just tuning into this one, there's a, there's a first conversation with Georgie on the podcast that I recommend you listen to. I've got a whole nother page plus of notes that I'm excited to talk to Georgie about. And uh, again, like last time we started out talking about Mexican Coke versus, versus high fructose corn syrup. This yep. time, I want to start out by talking about cranky crabs. Georgie, can you tell me what makes crabs cranky? Do you remember this conversation uh, about SSRIs and serotonin? And then we can go from there. Yeah, I mean, you're probably referring to that study that they... Uh check the estuary waters like very close to the beach um, and they check the crabs and, and they were acting real strange and the researchers didn't know what's going on but the crabs basically uh, when they pl- when they were placed in an aquarium started turning on each other and eating each other devouring each other and, and you know killing each other which is very very unusual for crabs unless something's going on you know to you know, obviously to like push them into that behavior they, they almost never react like this in the nature unless they're starving right or you know somehow pushed uh, to defend their territory to the death. So the researchers thought that it's exposure to something in the water that's flowing from the wastewater into the ocean. It's supposed to be filtered, but most of the filters cannot really filter the small, small molecules such as pharmaceutical compounds. Um, there are filters that can do that. They're called ozone filters, but they're much more expensive. And most of the municipal water processing plants, they don't want to go to the expense because they're saying, well, this water is not coming back to drink. Uh, we're just going to dump it in the ocean. And as long as we remove the really toxic stuff that EPA says is toxic to the wildlife, we should be okay. And it turns out that even very, very low concentra- intracellular concentrations of SSRI drugs, I think they tested several of them, the three top sellers like Prozac, Lexapro, and I think uh, there was another one that they tested. Um, even at exposures, at exposure levels that, that are basically much lower than what would be the concentration that would be achieved in a human taking these for depression, these crabs became homicidal, basically they cannibalistic homicidal. They really stopped behaving as normal animals living in harmony with the environment. They turned into vicious, vicious maniacs. And I am immediately reminded of an older study, which basically looked at locusts and grasshoppers. And they were the exact same species, right? So the only thing that differentiates one from the other is some kind of an environmental signal that turns the graceful, elegant, gregarious grasshopper, the green one that often animations portray as playing a violin, into a swarming beast that basically forms into a swarms that are comprised of billions upon billions. And then they basically, like, whatever wherever they pass, they eat anything that they can, including each other. And then that study found that the only difference between these two, you know, they're the same species, the only, phenot- the only difference between these two phenotypes was that the locust, the, 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 the homicidal maniac, had a much higher levels of serotonin in the brain. Uh, and the stu- both studies concluded that we need to be really careful about serotonin and it's far from the happy hormone that we've been told that it is. And we can raise its levels to basically any, you know, any amount. Cause obviously if somebody's telling you this is a good hormone, the more the better, right? And these studies cautiously concluded saying like, that's definitely not true. Now, whether serotonin is entirely bad for us or not, that's a different story. But since it's physiologically, it's present in the body and we're producing it, it probably does have a role. But, at the levels that we're seeing, you know, that can be caused pharmaco- by, can be used pharmacologically by these drugs or exposure to those drugs secondhand, uh, it's certainly not having a good effect on, on these species. And they're saying, well, it's, it's basically the crabs are their own separate species. The locusts are insects, right? It has, it has already been confirmed with mice and rodents. If you basically inject serotonin directly into their brain, they actually turn on each other. They start becoming really aggressive. 
Um, so the evidence seems to be that uh, you don't want to mess with serotonin and, and, and raise it too high. Another study that I will mention is they looked at the uh, cerebrospinal fluid of serial killers, uh, and all, every single one of them had elevated levels of a serotonin metabolite called 5-hydroxyindole acetic acid. Now, that doesn't by itself mean that they also had high serotonin, but since the, this was post-mortem exam, uh, by, that, by that time, the serotonin had already degraded, so they could, they could only assess the serotonin metabolite. But you can't have high 5-hydroxyindole acetic acid without having high serotonin, right? So the, even though it wasn't directly proven, we have some very serious evidence that serotonin in high levels can cause some um, really pathological behavior in almost every species, including men. And SSRI drugs have also been implicated in autism. And then yep. I've seen on your blog, heydut.me, well, H-A-I-D-U-T.me, which is a great blog, guys, if you want to check it out, that you posted an article talking about SSRIs decreasing androgens and other sex steroids. And I was like, uh, I just think it's such an interesting and, and tragic human experiment that we have these drugs that are widely prescribed and widely accepted in medicine to be benign and helpful, quote unquote, for humans. And yet, this excess serotonin that we're inducing with these SSRI drugs has all these negative side effects. I mean, autism, the sex steroids. You want to talk about that a little bit too? Just so people understand, like, here's an interesting experiment of what happens when you raise serotonin in your brain. and Serial killers, <laughs> to measure a few. Mass shooters. Actually, there's, now there's a whole website that's actually tracking what kind of drugs the mass shooters in the United States are using. And apparently every single one of them is on at least one SSRI. Some of them, many, like more than one. That is just crazy. And this is not medical advice, guys. Do not discontinue your medications. Talk to your doctor about this. But what I want is for people listening to this who are taking SSRI drugs or SNRI drugs, that anything that's going to pharmacologically increase serotonin in your brain to, to bring some of these questions to their doctors if they're not getting well. Because basically what I've seen in my medical career and, and what is supported by these articles is that increasing serotonin in the brain. And I want to talk about other ways that serotonin gets increased besides SSRI drugs next, but certainly increasing serotonin in the brain with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. So you're inhibiting the reuptake of the serotonin at the end of the neuron in that synapse, which increases serotonin in that place. And it binds to the receptors, more serotonergic activity that essentially makes humans kind of unfeeling zombies. Yeah. When, yeah. You know, it, it lobotomizes them chemically effectively. Yeah. Uh, and a recent study, I don't know if you saw it coming out of the University of Cambridge or Oxford. There's this lady there and she's a doctor and she does this research on she's tracking the SRI industry. Right. And she came up with this study, which I, I don't know if you saw it. It was just last fall that said serotonin is not basically like the serotonin hypothesis has been debunked after looking at all the studies that have been published. There is zero evidence that serotonin is low in depression. And then before her study, which was looked at all the studies that are published, it was a meta study. Before that, back in, I think it was 2018, there was a study by another famous uh, psychiatrist. I'm, I forgot his name, but he, he presented the American Psychiatric Association, APA. Headquarters are not far from, from here. And he said serotonin, uh, it was titled serotonin, upper or downer. And then he basically listed other evidence. He's saying that actually when we look at the brains of animals that we have very kind of like well-established models of depression of inducing them, their brain, their brain serotonin levels are high. Uh, it's actually only in people with well compensated depression uh, or animals, actually, because they haven't looked at the you know the postmortem of that many people. Then we see serotonin levels kind of decline, and sometimes maybe even go low. But it's more often than not, serotonin is a downer. It's not an upper. And this this uh, more recent study of the lady, basically that was at Oxford or Cambridge, she said, well, the primary role of serotonin in the brain seems to be not necessarily to regulate the mood, but it's a metabolic regulator. 
Elevated serotonin means low ATP levels in the brain. And then I said, oh, my God. Another study that I remember in 2016 said that if you drop ATP levels in the brain by just 20%, you trigger violent, like, homicidal aggression in animals. Um, and I think they looked at bees and some other insects, and they said, like, basically aggression is a sign of low levels of oxidative phosphorylation in the brain. You're not producing sufficient amounts of ATP, which means, of course, the stress system gets triggered, right? The brain definitely needs energy, otherwise, you, you know, we collapse. So this means cortisol, adrenaline, nor norepinephrine, all of these things get elevated, right, to provide emergency energy, but at the cost of drastically soured up mood because the brain is very sensitive to energetic deprivation and consumes, I think, like, what, 40% of the calories that we daily go, go to the brain? Yeah, something like that. So basically, you know, you're providing energy to the brain through the stress system, but it's a very inefficient metabolism, mostly dependent on glycolysis. And you're gonna, you, you still won't be able to produce sufficient amount of ATP. You only produce sufficient amount of ATP is to respond kind of like defensively and aggressively to the world, not in a way that, that's constructive. And that's, that's kind of what we're seeing by raising serotonin, whether through drugs or, you know, dietary or even stress. That's what stress does. Stress raises serotonin too. Yeah. And we'll get to that in a moment. The other piece of serotonin that I've seen you talk about that I thought was really interesting that I was never taught in all of my medical school or residency is that there's some really good research that all of the SSRIs induce microscopic um, colitis in, in humans yeah. Yeah. with an odds ratio of something like 37 for some of the SSRIs, which means that there's 37 times more incidence of, of microscopic colitis, which is just an inflammation of the gut. So you're giving yep. people SSRIs and people should know that serotonin, most of the serotonin is produced in the gut. The original name for serotonin was like enteramine, right? Or something. Enteramine, yeah. Yeah. Some yeah, books call enteramine. It, yeah. It's produced in the gut mm -hmm. and you give people SSRIs, microscopic colitis, which is basically little bleeding, little, little inflammation in the gut. Do you think that this, I mean, this is, let's just take a little conspiratorial um, sidestep here. Do you think this is all related to LSD, which has anti-serotonergic properties and this, this idea that, that, that serotonin, more serotonin seems to make people compliant? And Exactly. Yeah, what do you think is going on there? It's crazy. So the original research on serotonin started by the government looking, especially the military, looking in the 1950s and 60s, looking at LSD. So they saw that people, they saw the uh, social rights, the, the civil rights movement, they saw the hippie movement, and then they experiment on soldiers. There's these famous videos, I think they're still on YouTube. You have this basically platoon that's that's either taking LSD or not taking LSD. And the ones that are not that are not taking LSD, oh, they're fully compliant. They march information. They're, they're, they're almost like act as one, right? They, they don't dare question orders. And then they give them microdosing LSD because the pharmacological dose for, for LSD is like, let's say, 200 micrograms. They gave them 20 or 50. And that was sufficient to, to break this platoon out in these like small gregarious groups that are basically hugging each other, singing, acting kind of like drunk people, you know? And then you see the colonel trying to order them back into formation. They're giving him the finger. They're basically like rolling on the ground laughing. Uh, drinking, I mean, they weren't drinking alcohol, but they were drinking lemonade or what we're drinking there. So basically, the government said, Oh my God, if this gets out of hand, imagine what kind of society we're going to have. Nobody's going to do anything. Nobody will follow orders. Nobody will follow recommendations. These people are completely ignoring us. They feel like they don't need us. And what, what politician will not be scared by the thought that he or she is no longer needed? Right. <laughs> and that's what, that's what the start of the government said. Okay. If LSD is doing this, how is it doing that? And then they noticed that it's opposing mostly. Uh, approximately because it does have some pro-serotonergic activity, but most of it, depending on the dose, is anti-serotonin and pro-dopamine. So they said, no matter what we do, we have to come up with a way 
to basically like to first of all market LSD as a drug that's called uh, making people go crazy, acting crazy, right? Completely out of you know a, 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 a complete lack of any restriction, any social inhibition, and you know the times are more conservative back then that actually worked. They said no, we don't want like people getting getting extremely promiscuous, only you know running around playing you know like uh, playing music, you know uh, you know getting sexual and whatnot. So they said okay, so what can we do? Well, if this opposes serotonin. Maybe serotonin is the thing that has the opposite effect. And then they did some studies again on soldiers and whatnot, and they noticed they gave them L-tryptophan, the precursor to serotonin. And they found out that basically it largely negates the effects of LSD. They said, bingo. And then I think they gave a contract to the company Eli Lilly um, to basically develop something that would have uh, a pro-serotonin effect. And out of this research came out the first SSRI, I think, is Prozac. Now, when Prozac came, up, came about and FDA approved it, a variety of countries around the world refused to approve it because they said it is very clear to us that when you give SSRIs to people for the first two to four weeks before kind of like there's an equilibrium, these people are at much higher risk of suicide. And it, what a bigger irony than giving people SSRIs that are at risk of suicide and you're giving them to prevent their suicide. But in fact, for the first couple of weeks, it's actually drastically increasing it. And in Germany, for uh, up until the, I think the early 90s, refused to do that. And then basically politicians got involved, called, uh, that's the, I think the story is official now, and said, you, you'll either, uh, you know, approve our drugs as we approve yours to use here, or we'll cut a lot of military assistance. And at the time, basically, Germany was still kind of like the Cold War era, you know, the, so the, the U.S. government applied pressure directly on the German government to approve Prozac for depression. Even then, the German government placed the, the first black box warning on an SSRI was in Germany in the early 90s, and they said, you should be under medical supervision on a daily basis if you're taking this drug to ensure that you're not at risk of harming yourself. Oh my God. Hopefully we can find those videos of the, of the soldiers and all oh, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just type oh. LSD soldiers on YouTube. I think they come up. Okay. We'll, we'll make a note to the podcast team. We got to put the YouTube videos in the video. And if you're not, if you guys are listening to this on audio, you might want to go to YouTube and watch this or, you know, Google this or, or search this, uh, this, these, these recalcitrant soldiers when they have, um, some sort of serotonergic blockade in their brains that makes them independent. So I know that most people listening to this podcast are not taking SSRI drugs. As I said, this is just an illustration of the pharmacology, but there, there are a lot of things in our lives that are going to increase serotonin. So let's move yep. to that next because this is where things get really interesting. So if, if you were going to, it, with all that being understood, you take it back one more step. And I think people are thinking, okay, I don't want to do anything that's going to increase my serotonin pathologically. It's probably has some role in the human body, maybe signals, some sort of stress. Motility, state, is, gastric motility. Yeah. yeah. Really so what, what is going to raise serotonin in us humans if we're not taking SSRIs? Anything that irritates your intestine, even if it does not contain any precursor, just like you said, uh, causing microcolitis in the intestine, that will do it, right? These, there are these enterochromaffin cells that are lining up the intestine. Anything that basically, if you supply them with any chemical that would, that would irritate them, or if you mechanically twist the, the intestine, they will start producing serotonin. Uh, and this drastically, now there's a study that came up said that by serotonin activating the 5-HT3 receptor, which is one of its serotonin receptors, it increases the, the uh, 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 reabsorption of endotoxin from the intestine into the blood. So it's really like a nasty mechanism. Uh, and what do I mean by mechanical twisting? Well, running for a while, apparently, is enough to do it. There's this famous th thing called the Marathon's Diarrhea, right? You've probably seen it's not a pleasant picture, but these people regularly crap themselves and, uh, and you know, 
of I think up to this day they're saying, well, we don't know what it is. It's, I mean, we know there's we know there's stress, right? So maybe it's just the stress from running. Yeah, but what's the mechanism? And the mechanism seems to be that basically from this running, this this exhaustive running and constantly the intestine, you know, shaking up and down and sideways, they're producing so much serotonin that they're basically getting a diarrhea. Now, back in the middle of the 20th century, there was uh, when the first time the so-called carcinoid syndrome was discovered. It's basically the syndrome of people that have tumor in the gastrointestinal tract. More often than not, these tumors will either produce serotonin themselves directly or just by being there and creating a, a chronic inflammatory environment, they'll stimulate the rest of the intestine to produce serotonin. Well, one of the main two main symptoms of these of carcinoid syndrome is fl facial flushing and chronic diarrhea. And serotonin is responsible for both, together with histamine, which is more responsible for the flushing. So don't, I mean, treat your gastrointestinal tract with care. Um, I mean, running is fine, but, you know, obviously running marathons is probably not good for you. So I would say don't run any, any more than starts giving you, you know, the, you know, the, the, run, the runs. Um, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then what else? Well, if you eat, uh, be very careful of what processed food you eat. Recent studies have shown that something as benign as an artificial color, food color can actually cause inflammatory bowel disease. I don't know if you saw the blog, the post on the blog. Uh, a uh, a red something, uh, FDA has like a special red 40 or something. And that's that was sufficient to cause inflammatory bowel disease in animals. Um, and it achieved that by increasing the production of serotonin. So clearly, even in the gastrointestinal tract, either stressing the intestine or, or giving it something that basically irritates it, um, you know, it's it results in the production of serotonin. And, and ultimately, it is not good. Now, for a long time, I think even to this day, they teach in the medical books that serotonin doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So they're saying, well, okay, it can produce a lot of serotonin in the gut. Maybe it'll cause problems there or other peripheral tissues, but your brain's fine. Turns out it's not. Um, and they, they claim the same thing for GABA. And that's that's one reason why, uh, you know, th there are no really serotonin supplements on the market, or there are GABA supplements on the market, but the claim has always been they're ineffective. As soon as you take them, even if they're absorbed, they're not going to cross the blood-brain barrier. Recent studies have shown that both actually do cross the blood-brain barrier. And the, the expression of all of the serotonin receptors is much higher in the brain than it's even in the gastrointestinal tract. So even if a small portion of the serotonin that's mostly produced in the GA tract crosses the blood-brain barrier, you're going to have a lot of these you know, um, mood-altering progression phenotypes that we mentioned uh, at the beginning. Um, so yeah, so irritating foods. What does that mean? Well, okay, let's say I avoid all the artificial colors. Can something can something regular like starch, uh, you know, cause it? The answer is yes. So yeah, uh, first of all, resistant starch. If you eat the resistant starch and it reaches the colon in sufficient amounts undigested, then the bacteria there, the microbiome, is going to start processing it. Uh, and in the process of eating this food, the bacteria increases its turnover rate. Old bacteria dies, new bacteria gets formed, right? Uh, well, when that happens, the gram-negative types of the bacteria, when they break down, they contain in their outer layer this thing called lipopolysaccharide, also known as endotoxin. Now, ideally, this thing stays mostly, this endotoxin, highly pro-inflammatory molecule, stays mostly in your gut. But if the intestine is irritated, which resistant starch does, then basically by increasing the production of serotonin, as I just mentioned, serotonin re increases the uptake of endotoxin from the gut into the systemic circulation where it's accepted even in mainstream medicine to cause universal havoc by activating the family of T TLR, TLR receptors. Yeah. And so this is crazy because mainstream nutritional ideas are that resistant starch is second only to, um, 
you know, an apparition from the Virgin Mary or something. It's yeah. like, it's so holy and wonderful. And I remember when I first learned about resistant starch, the narrative was all, it's great for your microbiome, eat as much of it as you can. I ordered some like potato starch on Amazon and I was just throwing like resistant potato starch in my food. And this is, this is a totally different um, a paradigm shift to say that that starches or or even do you think soluble fiber could also do this because it's going to feed the microbiome and it's going to increase gram negatives and then we can get into some discussion of soluble versus insoluble fiber but soluble fiber found in things like beans or grains yep. lentils um, this I, I, this is an interesting piece of like sort of the Ray Pete philosophy that you've d done so much good work to discuss with people and, and promulgate is this idea that like, this is, I think it's so fascinating that, that increasing the microbiome in the colon, the, like the full number of bacteria and the populations may not always be a good thing for people because then you're getting more gram negative bacteria, which are going to turn over. You're going to get this lipopolysaccharide part of the cell wall, also known as endotoxin. And we know, I don't think anyone would argue that when endotoxin moves across the colonic lining into the bloodstream or even the small intestinal lining into the bloodstream, we have massive problems. Yeah, and uh, the soluble fibers, uh, specific, I think there's very, there's very good research showing that pectin, which is in virtually all processed foods out there, especially the yogurts and any of the milkshakes that you're drinking, almost all of them have even modified cornstarch, which I love. I mean, there's no there's no need to discuss because it it's also GMO, and this is like it's got its own problems now, showing to be allergenic because of the genes that have been modified. But pectin itself is now being shown to be strongly associated with all types of GI cancers, the of the large intestine of the small intestine, and even gastric cancer. And also with liver cancer, which kind of demonstrates that uh, pectin probably increases not only the endotoxin, but also the its absorption into the bloodstream because endotoxin is now known to be a known carcinogen for hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, so the, all of these, everything that can give the, this bacteria to feed on, specifically the uh, carbohydrates, whether they're resistant or not, it's going to create a problem. Now, the reason uh, we're saying like eat more easily digestible carbs, not, it's not because that they cannot feed this bacteria. It's because they get absorbed before they actually get re that reach the, colo the column. And in people with low metabolism or chronic inflammation, some of that bacteria starts to creep up into the small intestine. And now there's an officially recognized condition, SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And, and people are given this antibiotic, I think it's called rifaximin. Which is non-absorbed, right? Yeah, it travels through the through, through all the all the three portions of the GI tract, and it has a remarkable effect not only on the SIBO, but these people feel generally better. Their inflammatory markers go down. Uh, their total cholesterol, the LDL uh, total and LDL cholesterol go down. Um, the CRP goes down. So it looks like just just this presence of the bacteria and all of its end byproducts are not good for us, right? So it's good to keep this bacteria probably in check. Several studies notice that people that are preparing for bowel surgery, they often get very high doses of, of antibiotics to kind of completely sterilize the intestine. I think it's like a, a, a cocktail of neomycin and gentamicin, some kind of a strong cocktail combination. So they get it for several days before the bowel surgery. And then after that, uh, doctors notice that these people do remarkably well and actually lose weight depending on how, how sterilized their gut is, to the point where <laughs> these people actually started asking the doctor, hey, I mean, I don't know what you gave me before the surgery, but after that, you know, I feel really well. I don't I don't put on the pounds as easily. The doctor thought, well, maybe it's because of the surgery. We, we resolve whatever problem you have. But little by little, other, other studies have been done and noticed that animals that are kept with completely sterile guts, which is not practical for humans, but just to illustrate a point, they cannot get weight even on a very high-fat diet. So you, you pump them full of calories up to four times what they would normally eat with a, with a colonized GI tract, 
and then and they don't get weight. They don't they don't get fat. So something about this bacteria, and now we think we know that it's mostly through the chronic inflammatory reaction that that kind of occurs with every meal. But you know it helps to keep that one as low as possible. And the way you do it is make sure you eat foods that first don't irritate the intestine mechanically, right? Um, make sure that they're not as toxic as these artificial dyes that are now known to actually uh, be, be probably toxic to the, to the to the cells that are lying in the intestine. And three, just just things that do not feed the bacteria. So uh, the small, the, like the simple starches. Now I know uh, uh, Dr. Pete preferred fructose and uh, sugar from ripe fruits. Uh, I think that's fine because a lot of um, other studies have shown that if you actually consume as much sugar as you want from ripe fruits, you also don't get weight. So there's something in the fruit. Maybe it's the fiber because they also contain a lot of insoluble fiber. Maybe it's some of the flavones and flavanols, especially in, in citrus fruits. Uh, bottom line is if you're eating simple sugars, especially if they're coming from natural sources, they don't seem to cause this like pro-bacteria, pro-endotoxin effect. And you living in uh, Costa Rica, you probably <laughs> have access to a lot of ripe fruit, you know, or, you know, uh, ruminant meats and ripe fruit is probably what we were kind of, I want to say, born to eat um, and thrive. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing, I mean, partially inspired by, by by you guys. I've been doing a lot of orange juice, fresh squeezed orange juice every day. Um, and I'm, I'll am i do mango juice. It's It's been an interesting experiment recently. I got a juicer and I'm just trying to do, and this is something that kind of harkens back to my days as a pure carnivore, as little fiber as possible. So I'll do four mangoes in a juicer and then I get this big mug of, of mango juice with much less fiber because what I've seen, and this is so interesting, is that most fruit has some soluble fiber and some insoluble fiber. And so my gut definitely feels quieter when I have less fiber overall and I'm trying to get the simple carbohydrates. And I've been interested in that for a while, this fruit as a source of carbohydrates for humans. I do a lot of maple syrup and honey in my diet and I don't do any starches. I've never done any roots because I was kind of concerned about the resistant starches and then other plant defense chemicals in the roots, whether it's solanine and choconine and the potatoes or oxalates and things like that, that I kind of wanted to avoid. But I just think it's so interesting um, that that the soluble fiber can feed the bacteria in the colon and potentially cause imbalances. I don't think we're suggesting you want to sterilize your gut. Like we oh, talked no, no, about. I said it's in, impractical, in, yeah, yeah. Impractical for humans. But it is interesting that some of the foods that we eat that have traditionally canonically been told to us as healthy, like lentils and beans and grains, could be contributing to this problem. And things like starches, cornstarch, resistant starch, cooked and cooled potatoes. I mean, that's a favorite one for people for resistant starch. You probably don't want to do that or you want to have some metric on the back end to make sure that your endotoxin isn't going up. So one of the more interesting things I came across was this um, LPS binding protein. Yeah. Have you ever yeah. seen anyone measure that with a lab? The next time I get my blood work done, I want to get LBP levels, you know, LPS binding protein. I mean, you as a doctor can probably order it. I've not seen a way to order directly from one of these direct-to-customer labs. Like, they just don't list it. I mean, they may be able because they have a doctor on staff too. They just don't advertise it. And I called several of them. They said, no, we, I mean, we know about it, but it's not on the list and we don't want to do something that's like off the list. Um, but uh, it's, I think it's a very good biomarker. Another one that you mentioned, the last one is soluble CD14, uh, another uh, biomarker of endo chronic systemic endotoxin exposure. Interestingly, it's a very good predictor of mortality from HIV. So now it tells you that maybe even things like HIV, like chronic viral infections are actually driven, at least uh, the, the, you know, the, the long-term dangerous pathology associated with them may be uh, driven largely by endotoxin. HDL is actually a very good one, which most labs have. Now, if you have elevated HDL in the, in the, in, in the setting of a normal LDL, chances are you're dealing with, you know, uh, some kind of endotoxin assault. I've seen it very often rise in people who have had like a, a bit too much to drink, to, you know, a couple of nights before. 
and mm-hmm. uh, ethanol is is notorious number one for increasing the permeability of the of the GI tract, and second, ethanol itself is an activator of TLR4 and an activator of 5-HT3. So so a lot of the bad uh, you know effects of ethanol because it's just the, the alcohol of acetic acid, it is an energy molecule. We should, we, should able, we should be able to metabolize it. Uh, it looks like a lot of the bad effects of ethanol are due to uh, its pro-endotoxin effects and also increasing endotoxin absorption uh, into the gut itself. And if you block these, which several studies have done, ethanol is just this basically not a benign energy source, just like sugar. So I remember the study that where they gave at, um, animals uh, a 5-HT3 antagonist known as ondansetron. And then they gave them basically liberal access to ethanol to the point where 40 or 50% of the calories of the mice came from alcohol. They were perfectly fine. Yeah, they were drunk, but they didn't develop any liver problems, um, fattening of the liver, like fibrotic changes, and they were doing just fine. Um, so, yeah, so things like that, basically, HDL maybe, uh, most doctors should be able to do or at least order it. And I think the HDL, HDL to LDL is can also be uh, a good indicator, even though... Now it's, uh, I think it's used as a um, uh, biomarker for uh, for heart disease. Recently got challenged because um, there are many drugs on the market that are trying to raise HDL because for a long time uh, doctors were saying, oh, it's a good, it's a good cholesterol, right? You want the LDL low, the HDL high, but all of these uh, drugs that are trying to raise HDL uh, artificially invariably flopped in the clinical trials. In fact, several of them increased dramatically the risk of of uh, uh, hemorrhagic strokes. Which is really nasty. It's probably oh, yeah. even more dangerous than the ischemic type, right? Uh, and they said there's something about HDL that you know we don't understand. It's most certainly not a good cholesterol. Well, its main role physiologically is to actually carry endotoxin from the bloodstream back to the liver for for you know for neutralization and excretion. So if you have elevated HDL, uh, which ethanol does, right? But many other things can do. Unexplained elevated HDL is more often than not probably an indication of uh, high endotoxin in the blood. Yeah, LD, HDL is a little tricky because I think that there's probably some genetics based on the kinetics of HDL. Different HDL subtypes move at different speeds. And I've seen people with different levels of HDL. I think that it, when I'm thinking about HDL, I might ask people like, if you're insulin sensitive and you're healthy and you right. see where your HDL is at, and then you do something like adding potatoes to your diet or cornstarch, or you know, you drink a bunch of alcohol and you see the HDL go up, then you might see that. But it's, yeah. it's just so tricky because um, yeah, some people genetically have HDL of 40 and they're probably metabolically healthy and some people have hdl in the 60s and that's just where it it lands and so it's a little trickier one but i I do want to try and get some of these labs that i work with to measure lbp the lipopolysaccharide the the most the most effective is probably going to be the one that would be really that would be really cool and since we're talking about labs i wanted to circle back to something we talked about in the last podcast which was prolactin Mm -hmm. um i think that in terms of bang for your buck blood work that's one of the ones that I, I, I just wanted to emphasize for people that I don't think enough doctors do. Um, and, and, and I know you and, and Danny on your podcast, on the podcast, Generative Energy, which I would recommend people check out, have talked about this. But the, the reference range for prolactin goes up into the 20s now. And I think that, I mean, um, I'm curious to see where my prolactin goes as I continue to do phlebotomy and lower my stores of iron. I think the last one I had was seven, but I would like to see my prolactin even lower than that. Um, you know, can you think of other blood work that's like really interesting that that might be insightful for people that isn't part of the normal or different ways of thinking about the blood work that we often do, like maybe bicarbonate for CO2 levels? Yes. That's probably something. That's great. Yeah. So basically, uh, out of the prolactin is probably the best single biomarker in terms of uh, assessing your uh, stero- stero- steroidal health. 
There is no case in which prolactin will be elevated and you will be in good health. There's not, there's none. Uh, you know, there's multiple, many diseases. Unfortunately, it's non-specific. I think as doctors call it, but uh, there, I don't know of any, any situation where prolactin will be good unless it's a breastfeeding woman uh, where basically prolactin has, that, that is its role basically to increase the bone. And even then the problem is the woman, uh, the woman's calcium intake uh, and or vitamin D levels are lower than optimal. That's why prolactin rose to basically resorb the bone and give the calcium needed to produce the milk. Even then, it's basic, it can be dangerous. But for a non, non-breastfeeding person, uh, and especially for males, there is no good situation where prolactin will be elevated. Uh, it's a great surrogate for estrogen because one of the, one of the strongest uh, uh, triggers for release of prolactin from the pituitary is estrogen. Uh, and people get going on anti-estrogenic drugs, especially women with breast cancer. Uh, up until, I think, the early 2000s, prolactin used to be a biomarker as part of the uh, panel for whether the woman's cancer is in remission or not. And very often doctors will see that basically a woman is a take, a breast cancer is taking an aromatase inhibitor or like these serms known as tamoxifen, clomiphen, et cetera. And if the prolactin levels start to go up, the doctor will start to get worried, saying like you're not responding or you, we didn't take the, the, uh, all the tumor out during surgery and whatnot. So really a great biomarker for systemic health. And I think now is, uh, I mean, I checked several medical uh, textbooks and they're actually saying it's a very good, both acute and stress, bio, uh, acute and chronic biomarker of stress. Um, and if you get, uh, you know, prolactin, uh, definitely over 22, in which case it's it's definitely a problem, but they've changed the range. It used to be upper limit, used to be 12 uh, back in the 70s. And now it's 22. So they've increased it by 100%. <laughs> and, and there's no explanation of why that would be normal, except they say, well, that's to change the population, right? Because that's how they sample it. Merck that publishes the Merck manual and like all of these ranges, I think they're responsible for says, well, we're getting a large group of people and over time the prolactin changes and because they don't, there's no theory behind it. What should be optimal, right? Uh, but I think if you look at uh, things like uh, pulse temperature, thyroid function and, and things like for men, like total testosterone, estrone and especially estrone sulfate are also very good biomarkers for males and for females. Cause now they found out that for males, things like uh, prostate cancer, breast cancer in males, which exists too. Uh, and from females, uh, breast cancer, uh, uh, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, estrone, and especially estrone sulfate seems to be a much better biomarker of whether the woman will first get this and second, whether the woman and or the men will die from this. So in other words, it's a bad biomarker for all these cancers and much more reliable than taking the chicken estradiol, which seems to, ve- first of all, seems to vary very, very much, right? And also after menopause, it's undetectable in, in, uh, in female blood. Uh, so it doesn't tell you much. It doesn't tell you what's going on in the tissues. And even though estrone and estrone sulfate are extracellular, or at least estrone sulfate is, it looks like estrone sulfate, just like DHA sulfate, is an indicator of your long-term stores of estrogen because mm-hmm. estrone sulfate can get easily converted back into estrone through the, through the uh, sulfatase enzymes. And estrone is just one step away from estradiol. So it looks like, it's like the body keeps estro- estrogen in a relatively benign form in the form of estrone sulfate, which is inactive, cannot activate the estrogen receptors. And then as needed, converts it back into the more active estrone and even more active estradiol. So if you ch- check in your estrone sulfate, check in your prolactin uh, for females, oh, progesterone is also a very good biomarker for females. And not just the absolute levels, but the r- ratio of progesterone to total estrogens should be at least 200 to 1. If it is not, then even though your biomarkers may be in the normal range individually, many doctors are now saying that this per- this, the woman is in relative estrogen excess, estrogen dominance. Uh, for males, um, it looks like basically you can kind of de- de- derive a, a, such a ratio as well, androgens to estrogen ratio. Uh, and it looks like it, it needs to be at least 50 to 1 
total androgen, the sum of total androgens to the sum of total estrogens. Um, so total, total testosterone, very good indication of your gonadal function, uh, which now multiple studies have found that total testosterone is inversely correlated with cardiovascular disease, with Alzheimer's, with, uh, you know, Parkinson disease, with general frailty in, you know, in life, uh, inversely correlated with hand grip strength, which is itself now a very, has been defined as a very good measure of longevity. Turns out that strength is good, right? If you have a 90 year old grandpa who can, you know, bench press a few hundred pounds or like, you know, crush a, I don't know, <laughs> a nut with his hand, uh, looks like this person is very healthy. He's going to live, keep living. And I'm thinking of other blood work. Well, actually, before we get to that, I, we can also talk about this thing. We didn't talk about this on the last podcast, but there's a very low tech way of getting a sense of your overall metabolic function. I think that one of the things I've gathered from this, this, realm of philosophy, this, this is this like metabolic energy philosophy is that you want your metabolism to burn hot. You want the fires in the engine of your, you know, your train to burn hot. You want your thyroid to work. And we can talk about that, but you want your metabolism to be high. And so when you're recommending that somebody check there, is it morning pulse and morning temperature? What kind of numbers should they look for? Because that is so low tech that everyone can do this. And I know that when I've been over-exercising and doing my running, which caused me to have diarrhea while I was running multiple times, um, you know, my pulse was very low. And, you know, that, that my, when I was keto, my body temperature was lower. And I think if more people on ketogenic and low-carb diets check their body temperature, they would understand what we're talking about here. So what do you want to see for pulse and temperature? Because anyone can check this as just a a dipstick, like, an, you know, check the oil on the car for how the metabolic function is working because we want those electrons moving through the electron transport chain, glycolysis, pyruvate, Krebs cycle, electron transport chain. We don't want that stop. Like, that's the whole idea of this concept, I believe. Yeah, so a low-tech, very te very low-tech way is to check the positive temperature. And also, mo most doctors can do the Achilles tendon reflex, mm -hmm. a very old and very reliable method of assessing thyroid function because the speed of relaxation of a muscle depends on thyroid function. Um, and the, the mechanism is still not entirely understood what exactly, because it's not T3. It's not high T3 that allows the relaxation of the, of the contractor muscle, something else, probably ATP. And because ATP synthesis depends so much on oxidative phosphorylation, um, it's efficient production, then it's a, it's a good surrogate indicator of just how well your, your metabolic function works. But in terms of pulse and temperature, I, I think before eating, waking up, you would want your temps to be at least 97 degrees to 97.5. Uh, and you would want your pulse to be probably no lower, no, no lower than 75. And after eating, uh, basically after getting a, a decent meal with sufficient amount of protein, uh, you would probably want the temperature to be 98 to 98.5 and pulse to be 80, 85. I wouldn't, I, I don't want bradycardia. I don't want over 90. I think that's starting to get to a bit too high to, um, for, for comfort, especially if you have to go to like an exit to do exercise or workout or do something something other relatively stressful, you don't want your post to be too high. It's going to get to a situation where it's uncomfortable. Um, so, but yeah, 80, 80, 80 to 85 pulse um, uh, after eating, um, no, low, no lower than 75 before eating, and the temperature's 97 to 97.5 before eating at waking time, and, you know, 90, 98.5 after eating. Um, and then you can, you know, see how this varies throughout the day as well. You would want these numbers to basically, you know, stay up, throughout the day and it's slowly declining the afternoon when cortisol is supposed to be the lowest. Cortisol and adrenaline can actually raise surface temperature and depending on how people measure their temperature, they may be measuring more of a surface temperature. So um, 
underarm temperature, I think is, is preferable. Or if you get a really good thermometer, basically, but you have to keep it really well under the tongue. And, you know, a nurse is very well skilled in getting core temperature. Uh, so if people, there's some videos they can they can look at, but yeah. So under under tongue temperature, the infrared thermometers are not that good, and also they tend to measure surface skin surface temperature. So if your if your histamine is high, if your adrenaline is high, if your cortisol is high, you get like this, uh, you know, surface vasodilation. You get red right in the face, especially after exercising, and you measure the temperature. This person is like, oh my god, this person is running so hot. Their their core temperature is low, and if you talk to a person who's let's say run for a few hours. Uh, you know, they sometimes get the shakes and actually they're, they're feeling that their extremities are cold. But if you check the surface temperature, you'll be high. So it's a bit of a paradox, but it shows you that when you're under stress, you're lowering the basal metabolic rate and you're increasing the stress reaction. And the function of the stress reaction is to keep your, basically your, uh, keep you functioning. Uh, and it looks like you're, you have good temperature, but in fact, the core one is low. So you got to get core temperature, which is probably yeah. going to be an axillary, like under yes. the armpits. So all of you guys and girls out there that have sweaty armpits, maybe this is a good sign. <laughs> you don't, it is. Don't, yes. <laughs> don't go putting antiperspirant in there with full of aluminum. Just let those armpits sweat. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a horrible yes. thing. Giving you Alzheimer's with this. All yes, it's a bad. It's a bad thing. So there's so much. Okay. So I want to talk about one more blood, 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 um, blood lab that people could look at. And I was just thinking bicarbonate. Do you have any sense of like, because I've, I've heard you talk about like the importance of carbon dioxide in the human body. And I'm thinking, okay, bicarbonate is probably a good indicator of, of, of CO2. Like, do you have any sense of like where people would want to see their bicarbonate? Or is there another lab that you think would be better for people to get a sense of like how everything's working? I mean, they can, they can measure lactate, lactic acid. It's, yeah. a, it's a very widely available test. And basically uh, I'm forgetting the range, but I think if it's over two millimoles per liter, I think that's, that's the... Basically, this, uh, it's within the normal range, but if it's above two millimoles, which I think is about the 75th percentile, again, another range where they basically extended the range, the upper limit of normal. And now you think, oh, it's great. But but you actually, uh, it's very easy to know whether your lactate is high. Uh, you, you'll have burning feeling in extremities or any any body portion where the lactic acid is. The, you know, the, the, the muscle ache after over-exercising is mostly due to the accumulation of the lactic acid. Uh, and also, you'll you'll be very easily out of breath, so you won't be able to, let's say, run and hold a conversation. Um, you know, obviously, if you're running too hard, you won't be able have a conversation either. But it's now if you're having a light jog and you feel like you're panting, you're catch, trying to catch your breath, and you cannot even say like a few sentences. Chances are you're basically um, hyperventilating, which ex- increases the excretion of carbon dioxide. And in the body, the carbon dioxide is kind of like the main um, antagonist of, of lactic acid. Um, so yeah, uh, test for lactic acid and even better yet, test for pyruvate and lactic acid and looking at their ratio. Uh, so, so ideally you would want the ratio, I think, to be at least four to one of pyruvate to lactic acid in the blood. And if it's not, this also correlates with bicarbonate. If it's not, you're probably going to have issues with the breathing and, and easily, easily fatigued. And the bicarbonate, I think it runs from 20 to 32, I believe. Something like that. Sometimes yeah. it goes a little lower in the reference range, but. Uh, my experience is that anything lower than 25 is probably in a situation where you've either overexerted yourself, you've hyperventilated, or you're just waking up, you haven't eaten, so stress hormones were high throughout the night. Um, and if it's chronically, you know, in that situation, you're usually seen in diabetic people. And if it's below 20, uh, several people with cancer have sent me their blood work. All of them, without exception, had very, very low levels of bicarbonate in the blood, all below 20. Uh, and if you want to go a little bit more high tech, if you're willing to spend the money, they sell these portable so-called capnometers. We actually measure the exhaled carbon dioxide, very good uh, biomarker. 
of basically carbon dioxide production and retention. Now, one caution, if you have chronic obstruction, Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, you will have high carbon carbon dioxide, but it's not a good situation. So unless you have that, then you know basically a high higher level. So I think the, you can measure up to fifty, but anything over thirty five is usually an indication of a healthy metabolism. I, I should get a capnometer. That would be interesting to look at just the amount of exhaled carbon dioxide, and and you could see changes in this. I mean, when I was keto, my bicarbonate was eighteen. It was below twenty almost all the time. I was just happy if it was in the reference range. And now that I'm eating carbohydrates, people can see my blood work. I've done multiple blood work podcasts. It's always in the high twenties. But it would be super interesting. And, and somebody who is on a ketogenic diet is going to do a capnometer and have much lower exhaled carbon dioxide, right? Yeah, and it, we can also use the pulsimeter, which I think you mentioned in your email. Uh, many people will think, oh, I want 98 or 99. Exactly. Uh, not necessarily. Uh, you know, a, a, a corpse in the morgue will have 100, um, and it's not necessarily a good indication. So now, of course, it's very low. Then you, then you have to start looking at things like, does this person have an anemia? Do they have like some kind of a lung disease? The hemoglobin cannot bind to the oxygen. What's the actual cause? But that's, that's, that tends to be rare. But I've seen the healthier people, the younger people, if you measure their carbon dioxide, if they are metabolically healthy, uh, not carbon dioxide, but the pulse, the reading is below 95. Um, so you would want some, somewhere between 90, 92 to 94 is probably ideal. Anything less than that, you either have lung problems, anemia, or you're very hypermetabolic. Uh, and it's relatively easy to tell which one the issue is. Because if you have problems with um, carrying oxygen, you'll basically be in a hypoxic state. You're, again, catching your breath, right? Uh, you'll turn start turning blue in the extremities, from what I understand. So it, it's easy to say whether you know when you're getting a this lower reading on the pulsimeter, which is cheaper and everybody can get. It's very easy to say whether it's a good reading or a bad reading. Uh, even though most doctors, if they see you at 94, I think at below 93, most pulsimeters start to beep and say, "Oh, it's too low for, for comfort." Well, unless you have these one of these conditions, it's actually probably an indication that things are running well. And this is because of something called the Bohr effect. So people know, right? The fact that if you have more carbon dioxide in your tissues, hemoglobin is going to change its conformation, which allows oxygen to offload in the tissues more, which exactly. is going to show less oxygenation in your in your finger when you do a pulse ox. So a pulse ox is doing some sort of light assay of, of the blood, yeah. and it's going to give you a sense of how much of your hemoglobin is oxygenated. And if you have more carbon dioxide, which is something that you want, maybe that's a subject for a different podcast, it just means your metabolism is working well, then oxygen can offload to the tissues and you're oxygenating your tissues. It's so interesting when I heard you say this because it's counterintuitive or at least counter my education. I remember in the past when I was just eating kind of a paleo or whatever, not very intentionally, I would do a pulse ox in medical school, 98, 99. And I went to, I'm at sea level now in Costa Rica. And I went to the doctor the other day when they're doing my uh, phlebotomy, they would do a pulse ox. And it was like, it was lower than I'd seen it. It might've been 95. And I thought that's weird. Or even 94. And I was like, that's very weird. Like what is it's going on here? Freak out, right? <laughs> and I heard you say that and I was like, oh, okay. This, that made sense. So that's a, that's kind of high level for people to get their head around, but a pulse ox could be a good thing. So we had, um, just to review people, we had, we had prolactin, estrone or estrone sulfate, um, probably estradiol, total testosterone, bicarbonate, uh, LPS binding. Very good biomarker of longevity. Which one? Uh, DAP sulfate, very good indicator of, of, yeah. of, of longevity, all kinds of chronic disease, and cortisol. And the reason I mentioned cortisol is not for the absolute measure, but for the cortisol to the DHA sulfate ratio. Uh, you want it to be basically that, that ratio in blood needs to be at no more than 10 to 1 in favor of cortisol. If it is higher, then then uh, I think now even it started from psychiatry, noticing that a lot of people with depression and uh, and psychotic conditions have very high levels of 
of cortisol to DHA ratio. It's like 20 or 30, even more. But now they're finding out that this is is applicable to all kinds of other tissues, especially cardiovascular disease. So the cortisol to the DHA sulfate ratio is now proposed as the single best predictor of all-cause mortality and morbidity going into the future. So if wow. you can do, the, yeah, the single, the single best. Now, of course, if you add these other ones, you can get like a like a fuller picture. But if you do several tests, let's say over a couple of weeks, and the cortisol to DHA sulfate ratio is higher than ten. Chances are you're overstressing yourself, and to what degree will depend on the numerical value of the ratio. And so, when would you check the cortisol for a cortisol to DHEA sulfate ratio? Because often labs will get morning cortisol fasting. Yeah. Like, is that what we're talking about? Uh, ideally, you would want to do both in the same day, but that usually means two blood draws, which most people don't like. Uh, but uh, I've noticed that sometimes doctor uh, labs will be willing to like leave the cannula in- inserted, and then basically you go in the afternoon and they draw a second, but without having to puncture your vein again. So ideally, you want the the AM and PM in both in the same day because you want to see also the diurnal rhythm, right? So mm-hmm. very often people with uh, mental disease they will have like a normal morning cortisol, but the range is different, right? So if you check their afternoon cortisol, the cortisol will stay the same level as in the morning, but now the range is much lower, so you're overrange. And it's not so much the that you're overrange, but that there's no lowering. There's no there should be a rhythm, right? It should be more right. stress in the morning and kind of like calmer in the afternoon and in the evening. And very often people that have trouble sleeping. That is actually a sign of a kind of like a, a lack of the rhythm. Uh, people with mental disease very often have like a complete, they call it a flat pattern, right? It's just a single value and it doesn't change much throughout the day. Uh, and s- since it's the the afternoon range is lower, you actually overrange in the afternoon. It prevents you from sleeping. It makes you over agitated and stressed. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can measure either time, but make sure that the DHA and the cortisol are measured at the same time. So you can do only AM for cortisol and AM for DHEA. Or if you do, just don't do AM cortisol and PM DHEAS or right. the other way around, right? Right. Um, and then the ratio should be no no higher than 10 in favor of cortisol. That's super interesting. I'd have to go back and look at my blood work. I think mine was like a little over three, I want to say, but I'll have to check it again in the future. It's quite interesting. You're fine. Yeah, you're um, fine. One of the problems, so we've touched on serotonin and then endotoxin in the gut and kind of danced around this issue of estrogen a little bit. One of the interesting things I wanted to talk to you about was this idea that excess estrogen, which can be driven by all these same mechanisms that we're talking about, that this activation of the toll-like receptor 4, TLR4, mm-hmm. can cause this cascade. And um, that excess estrogen in the human body can lead to thymic atrophy. This is yep. I don't think many people even know about the thymus, but it's this immune gland behind the sternum that's quite interesting. And it, it involutes as we age, or at least that's the mainstream narrative. <laughs> Yeah. But it does, it does. But why exactly? Why does it involute? Right. right? Nobody right. has answered the question. And it looks like it shouldn't involute. In other words, it's a pathological process, and you can actually reverse it. You're probably referring to that study that I posted. Uh, administering aromatase inhibitors can reverse the age-related thymic atrophy, and it was a really blockbuster finding. Nobody expected to see it. Now, the, some evidence w- was seen indirectly by the fact that administering anti-cortisol agents, and cortisol is truly the primary driver of this atrophy. Um, estrogen is kind of acting through the cortisol. Uh, by administering anti-cortisol agents, um, they found out that you can actually at least stop the atrophy. Uh, one of the earliest uh, pieces of evidence came out from people using that drug RU486, uh, that they had actually a much much better immune function and they uh, were less susceptible to viral diseases during flu season. Um, and, you know, but it's not been known that cortisol is an immunosuppressant. Uh, so it's not very surprising they would, they would atrophy the thymus. So what does estrogen have to do with it? Well, it turns out that estrogen actually not only 
stimulates the release of ACTH from the pituitary, it also somehow breaks the negative feedback mechanism. So normally, when you're responding to stress, right, you get the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis to be activated, you release a lot of cortisol, the danger is gone, and the le high levels of cortisol are acting both on the hypothalamus and the pituitary to lower the ACTH and the CRH, which are driving the synthesis of cortisol. So it's kind of like the mechanism turns itself off, right? Because uh, you don't want elevated cortisol chronically. That's that's uh, Everybody accepts that's not a good thing. But estrogen somehow seems to break that, that, that negative feedback mechanism, and it looks like it's capable of entering those ACTH and CRH receptors and preventing from cortisol from going there and basically, uh, you know, uh, using the negative feedback mechanism to turn it itself, its own production off. So people with high estrogen uh, tend to have higher than baseline, than normal baseline cortisol. Now, the cortisol may be, again, like I said, in the normal range, but it may not be, uh, it may no longer exhibit a diurnal rhythm, right? In which case, having, so let's say, higher than normal cortisol still in range, but, you know, according to the PM, the PM range to be above range, that over time will actually lead to thymic involution. And very, I think a very good biomarker for that would be to uh, to look at things that relate to bone resorption, because cortisol will shred the bone just just as, a, as it will shred the muscle. Uh, people that are taking uh, glucocorticoid drugs chronically, they're at risk of osteoporosis, osteomalacia, right? So if you look at these biomarkers, it can kind of give you an idea of whether your cortisol is higher than normal. And those biomarkers correlate very well with the uh, with the basically the level of thymic atrophy. Animal studies have shown that administering progesterone, which happens to be a glucocorticoid antagonist, uh, selective though, sometimes it can fill in for cortisol's effects, it can actually reverse the thymic atrophy uh, in rodents. Um, and uh, several studies now recent show that progesterone, uh, that women are at much lower risk for COVID-19, and when they have it, they actually have a much less severe version. So they said, well, it must, the androgens must be bad for men, and the, the estrogens and progesterone must be protective for women. So they did these trials, and they had several arms, thankfully, not to muddy the waters. They had a, an arm with just progesterone and an arm with just estrogen, right? And all of the estrogen arms have so far been terminated early, which means usually an indication that it made the condition worse. The progesterone arms are still ongoing. Now, no word on yet whether it's effective, but the good news is it's more effective than estrogen, or at least not non-harmful, right? And then older, other older studies notice that if you give anabolic steroids to animals, um, uh, the ones that cause thymic involution are invariably the ones that are capable of aromatization. In other words, raising raising estrogen. So it's really estrogen through its breaking of the negative feedback mechanism on cortisol that ultimately causes the atrophy of the thymus gland, while simultaneously increasing the production of immature white blood cells. And if this mechanism gets out of control, you essentially get the various uh, hematological cancers, leukemias, lymphomas, right? Um, and now they're trying, There's, I think there's a clinical trial with tamoxifene, which is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, mostly antiestrogenic, to see if it can actually treat it. And the drug RU486, which is even though it's progesterone antagonist and cortisol antagonist, it also has antiestrogenic effects because it's structurally very similar to progesterone. There are several studies out there, case studies, uh, case studies, not, not big ones, showing rapid and complete remission of several different highly aggressive leukemias and lymphomas. So really, estrogen is kind of like the if you're in danger, if you if you're injured, estrogen is the the mechanism that kickstart the production of new tissue, kind of like fill in the void and like create and fill in the wound, right? But that has to be turned off. If it's not turned off, then we get into this state of differentiated growth, which eventually, uh, because you know, if it gets out of hand, it's it's cancer. 
Isn't there some evidence that desiccated thymus also can help with replenishing the thymus gland, which is wild. Like this is interesting to me because at at heart and soil, we make a supplement called histamine and immune, which has desiccated thymus in it. And I mean, having a thymus that is getting stronger is that can, that's probably good for your immune system. So whenever I see that a desiccated organ um, or a fresh organ, I mean, I I asked the butcher to bring me some thymus this week. I'm crossing my fingers that I'll get some like, that's interesting. I'm going to start eating thymus more often, Georgie. Have you ever, have you, do you eat thymus much? Well, uh, not much, but I eat it when I can, because it's not a gland that's usually available at the butcher unless you ask for it. Right. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes they, they use it for dog food and cat food. And, you know, sometimes they give you kidneys and liver that that's usually as, as, as far as they go in the big city. <laughs> but now I've started to ask for heart, you know, for kidneys, uh, you know, sometimes for intestine. Uh, if you look at the indigenous culture, they usually consume the entire animal. Oh yeah. They, they're, they're not necessarily going for the lean meat. I mean, they it almost, sometimes they actually, in some cultures, they give it to the dogs. And they themselves keep the organs, brain, tongue, right? All of all of the in, individual glands. So back in the day before they, they, we had the isolated steroids or whatever uh, the beneficial factor is in those glands, using desiccated glandular extract from many different glands was the way to go. Like if you had like a fertility problem, uh, a male, they will give you like ground up testicles. If you had a liver problem, you know, they'll give you like desiccated liver. Obviously thyroid, very popular. But for some reason, the only the thyroid thing that they kind of caught up as a medical drug. Um, and I don't know of any other company that's explored producing, like, let's say, desiccated liver extract for, like, I don't know, alcohol liver disease or anything like that. It would be super fascinating. I almost, I don't know how I feel about it because I don't know if I'd want the FDA to regulate it, you know, because then, <laughs> yeah, then you no. can't, then, then, yeah, <laughs> then people can't get it. I think that, you know, if you have issues with your liver, you should eat liver fresh or desiccated. And this has been so interesting. I mean, and I've seen studies on brain that like desiccated brain helps with cognitive decline. And when they tried to replicate the effect, they thought it was phosphatidylserine. And so they used a plant-based phosphatidylserine. It didn't have any effects on the yeah, brain. Right. There's something else in desiccated brain that helps. And um, I, I mean, think I know what it is. Did you What's see that? the recent blog post? I think I know what the factor is, at least one what of you, them. What do you think it is? Uh, the uh, recent study that I posted showing that the cells preferentially accumulate pregnenolone at a concentration several hundred times higher than what's in the blood. And I the highest that. concentration of pregnenolone is in the brain. Uh, so it's definitely, it, it's now known that pregnenolone has a promnesic effect. Uh, there, there are several rodent trials, uh, rodent studies with like the uh, Alzheimer version in rodents, right? Um, it worked very well. Um, now let's see. There's now actually a clinical trial for Alzheimer's with the pregnenolone. So let's see, let's see if it works. But I, it's it's probably not only that. The brain is a huge stereogenic organ. Many people don't think of it as as such, but it really produces and accumulates probably the largest amount of steroids out of any other organ except for the specialized ones. Such as if you want testosterone, you probably have to eat the gonads and the heart. And people say, well, why the heart? Well, the heart is a muscle. We know that cortisol is bad for the muscle. And the heart is a crucial muscle that the body will probably sacrifice the last before it, you know, before you die. So yeah. the, there must be a factor in there that protects when a person is under chronic stress and cortisol is high. Because these people, uh, the heart is usually held until the very last minute. Even in a cachectic patient, their their muscles are long gone, right? So that factor seems to be at least one of them seems to be testosterone and probably something else. And testosterone is a cortisol antagonist. So so yeah, so these organs have. And it's probably not the only factor. It's probably multiple peptides that we don't even know about yet that are there. Uh, and those basically, if you try to isolate them and make them into a drug, they have to be injectable. It's the fact that there's when you're eating the organ, there is such a high amount that some of it absorbs when you're eating it, right? Not all of it, but enough to make a benefit. And if you try to isolate, then you have to turn into some kind of injection, which 
automatically limits its access to like vast majority of people because you have to go to the doctor, right? You have to get injected and many people don't like that. It's super fascinating. I mean, this is, it's a really interesting thing. Eating organs is definitely something I'm fascinated by. And when we did the testing on the testicle, the desiccated testicle at hardened soil, lo and behold, it has androgens. It has a bunch of different naturally occurring androgens in there. So, and they seem to be bioavailable. And I've heard you talk about the fact that if you're eating the, the an oral steroid, whether it's pregnenolone or progesterone or testosterone with like long chain or, or medium chain saturated fats, it probably helps it bypass liver metabolism, and maybe makes it more bioavailable. I heard that right, right? Correct. Yeah. So, so uh, it, it, I always found it funny that, the, you know, the, the blogosphere says, oh, uh, DHEA and maybe pregnenolone are bioavailable when you when you take them orally, but if testosterone, you know, progesterone, all these others somehow are miraculously not bioavailable. Well, how come they're not that different, right? I mean, the DHEA is an androstain; it's a 19 carbon um, uh, steroid, so, same as testosterone, same as dihydrotestosterone, right? So if one of them is bioavailable, why is it, why aren't the others? And if you look in the literature, you'll see that that it's been long known that steroids are bioavailable; they're lipids. Uh, the only question is. When you absorb them, and they do absorb very well, how much of that gets sent to the liver, which, of course, will process a lot of them, and actually accumulate, not necessarily excrete. It will accumulate. So that's why liver is a good source of steroids. Um, and then how much will it release in the bloodstream? So if you want most of, it, most of it, obviously, to be released in the bloodstream, you have to bypass the liver, as you mentioned. And there's this lymphatic transport, which basically dumps them through the thoracic duct, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. So when you absorb from the intestine through the lymphatic system, they this whatever is absorbed to the lymphatic system does not go into the portal vein, which may, and the portal vein drains into the liver. So it means you're bypassing the liver, and then whatever gets absorbed in the lymphatic system, most of it goes into the uh, systemic circulation. And very old studies, when they were still studying, you know, the lipid absorption and what absorbs and what doesn't get absorbed, notice that um, fats with uh, chain length of 12 carbons or less um, tend to go mostly to the portal vein. But, you know, and, and I think the cutoff is about eight. So anything less than eight will probably get mostly to the portal vein. Between eight and 12, you'll get up like half and half. Anything higher than 12, actually, even preferably 14, you're getting about 85 to 90% going to the portal, I'm sorry, to the lymphatic system, which means that if you mix the steroids um, with these longer chain fatty acids, most of those, most of that steroid will actually go into your bloodstream. And now there are several companies on the market uh, all, they've propped up in the last couple of years that are now releasing, and they already have it approved, uh, oral testosterone for, formulation. First, they only have the wow. testosterone esters, testosterone undecanoate, which is the 11-chain uh, saturated fatty acid. But that one, they thought it wasn't well absorbed well enough. So now they have it in peanut butter. So they're using this, these principles, but they're using the wrong fat. <laughs> How about they use stearic acid? Like, let's put it in beef tallow butter. or... Yeah, butter. <laughs> yeah, butter. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine if we put testosterone in butter? That would be the best-selling butter that anyone... Like, that would fly off the shelves, Georgie. Please do. But you could also... Yeah, you could also just eat testicle or take a desiccated testicle with butter or a fat. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And sauteed liver in butter, sauteed testicles in fat. That's that's yeah, like yeah. that's basically testosterone replacement therapy without prescription. There you go. You heard it here, guys. Not medical advice. Um, not medical so advice. And please see Doctor Saladino to check your blood levels. Make sure you're not <laughs> overeating this stuff because you could. I mean, if you're eating testicles daily, I think you're going to be absorbing a amounts that at some point, you know, can become not problematic, but 
you want to make sure you're not overdoing it, right? Uh, yeah. Steroid. And I just wanted to emphasize on stearic acid. I've heard you mention, and I didn't know this, so thank you again, that stearic acid, which is an 18-carbon saturated fatty acid that I've been fascinated by. It's in tallow. It's in suet, you know, which is why I'm so excited about these animal fats. It's in butter. It's in milk. It's in animal fats. It's in cocoa butter also, but that's the only plant source of stearic acid that I'm aware of. Yeah. Um, that this fat is anti-estrogenic as well. Is yep. that true? Yep. Yeah, directly. I mean, it's still an, an in vitro study, uh, but they, they've sold that basically it can bind both the estrogen alpha and the beta receptor. And the, on the alpha, it acts as an antagonist and on the beta acts as, a, as an agonist. Uh, and maybe we'll say, okay, well, it's partially estrogenic. No, because the estrogen receptor beta is an autofeedback receptor. So in other words, estrogen receptor, estrogen receptor beta agonists lead to decreased synthesis of more estrogen. Um, the, the same thing is true for the progesterone receptors. I don't know if stearic acid has any effect there, but um, the studies have shown indirectly that consuming high amounts of stearic acid leads to improvement in the androgenic balance in males. And if there is a hypoestrogenemia um, uh, or insufficient progesterone, basically can improve and can prevent preeclampsia and eclampsia, which are deadly conditions in pregnant women. If they're, uh, all those studies shown that if they eat more ghee, which is the Indian clarified butter, still butter, right? Um, then basically a lot of these things can be prevented. And now they're known that uh, now it's known that preeclampsia and eclampsia are usually associated with a very low ratio of progesterone to, to estrogens. In other words, estrogen dominance. So this kind of confirms this in vitro, very recent in vitro study, which showed that basically stearic acid can, can uh, both antagonize estrogen at the receptor because you already have some estradiol running, right? So it can bind the estrogen receptor alpha and prevent estradiol from doing its bad things there. And also decrease the total levels of estrogens by binding and activating estrogen receptor beta, which sends a send signal to the, all the cells expressing aromatase saying, oh, we need to tone down the, the, the expression of aromatase so we don't produce as much estrogen. I mean, I've often thought people will ask me, how do we get rid of polyunsaturated fatty acids? And I think probably the best formula I can think of is eat lots of animal fats, preferably ruminant animal fats that are not corn and soy fed chicken and pigs, the lowest amount of linoleic acid in your diet, don't take fish oil and, and eat and get the stearic acid, you know, from tallow, from butter, from ghee, from suet, which is the kidney fat of animals, which is the highest stearic acid that I've seen. So I think that if you, if you do that, if you think, if you focus on animal fats and thinking about stearic acid, so maximize stearic acid, minimize polyunsaturated fatty acids, polyunsaturated fatty acids, omega-3 or omega-6, so linoleic acid, but also, I mean, I don't think omega-3s are that great for humans. That's a separate podcast. Um, then I think that that's, that's a good strategy. Would you add anything to that? Do you think that's reasonable? I think it's also, people shouldn't fret too much about a total intake of PUFA unless it's like in the 20 grams or more. And unfortunately for many people, it is because they consume these like seed oil produced foods. But the ratio of saturated fat to polyunsaturated fat is also very important. So sometimes if you have to go like go out and eat like, I don't know, like some kind of a, I don't know, a social event where obviously they're not going to be cooking with bioenergetic principles in mind. Um, and you have to eat something that's, you know, that's that's prepared with a, a pufa or has a lot of pufa itself, like salmon maybe, right? Uh, you know, you can take some vitamin E, but also uh, if you can eat some cheese or some butter or anything with a lot of saturated fatty, fatty uh, acids in it, uh, basically you will prevent a lot of the storage of that pufa into your tissues because these fat acids compete. Right for for uh, esterification triglycerides and then sending off to the storage to the fat to the actual fatty tissue, and you want this PUFA basically if you prevent it from being stored, um, and you have a healthy liver, a good portion of it will be excreted. However, if you're only eating the PUFA, first of all, yeah, liver will excrete some of it, but whatever remains, it has a limited capacity for oxidation of fats, 
it's just a you know uh, it's a physical limited organ then the rest will go to your tissues and then anytime you're under stress and you have lipolysis this will get released and cause all kinds of trouble so whenever you're eating pufa make sure you can get you can get a saturated fat in a ratio of at least two to one to whatever pufa amount you're eating that will help prevent or at least limit to a great deal the storage of it and will also help the liver excrete a lot of it uh, and some confirmation of that is that uh, all the studies with alcoholics show that if you give them polyunsaturated fats, they get like even very bad cirrhosis and, you know, could die. But if you give them saturated fats, it not only will reverse the cirrhosis, but actually if you give them saturated and polyunsaturated fats, it will prevent the damage that a lot of all of these polyunsaturated fats would do. So, yeah, so if you cannot avoid the poof up, ideally avoid it, right, as much as possible, but don't become orthorexic. Like if you have to go to an event and you have to eat, I mean, we have to live life, right? That's that's our environment currently. And all we can do is limit the damage. I love that. It's it's very actionable for people. I think that uh, the takeaway from that is never go anywhere without your emergency cheese and butter. So <laughs> I just imagine I just imagine people like women in your purses, you know, men in your fanny packs. You should have a little glass container with emergency cheese, yes. <laughs> emergency yes. Parmigiano Reggiano, emergency butter. And if you if you have to eat some food that has polyunsaturated fatty acids, some seed oils, just take a scoop of that butter with it, and it might mitigate the negative effects. You know, Parmigiano Reggiano. Uh, on a necklace would be a very a very helpful thing to ward away the uh, the polyan the poofa demons. Um, or, or we eat a cup of ice cream, you know, since it's dairy, right? It's very high on fats. They're mostly the dairy fats, so it'd be those good fats that we're talking about. It's hard to find a social event we're not going to have some kind of ice cream present. <laughs> I just wonder with cheese. ice cream. I, wor- I worry with ice cream. Does it have high fructose corn syrup versus yeah. sucrose You're and right. then carrageenan yeah. and then cheese is safer. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus, safer. Jesus safer. Yeah. I know they haven't managed go. to mess that up yet. Even though, like the the process, because it's an industrial food, right? They can produce in mass amounts, but it's usually just enzymes and milk, right? Uh, and unless they have add some kind of a artificial coloring to it, but it should say, right? If you're eating most cheeses, you're fine. This is actually an important point, which will segue to my last question. I know you've got to run, but you know, I was looking at my Parmigiano Reggiano cheese today, and the only ingredients are like milk, salt, and rennet. And I think that if you're eating cheese, my perspective would be you want to make sure that that's animal rennet and not vegetable rennet, um, especially if you have autoimmune conditions or you're quite sensitive. I and would you agree with that? I think that like you want to just be careful because some cheeses are going to have vegetable rennets in them, and I think that could cause autoimmune issues for people. It also has some soy residue. So if you're very allergic to soy, oh, so some yeah. of the soy protein that's there, it's going to cause allergic, allergic reactions. And if you're buying grated cheese, which I advise not to do, make sure that the label doesn't say, and unfortunately, sometimes now they're allowed to not say it, uh, it, it, it can have silicon dioxide powder in it as an anti-caking agent. And that's terrible. It's like powder glass into your intestines. It causes the exact same microcolitis that you mentioned initially. Uh, and over time, chances are, if, if you're consuming these foods regularly, you will get, maybe, you may get this inflammatory bowel disease down the road. So so as little process as possible, and that includes, you know, if you can get like the actual cheese block versus the grated one, go for the block, right? And, and you know, if you can check the rennet, again, I agree with you, uh, the animal rennet is much safer. And if it's a, if it's a, um, uh, the vegetable rennet, then watch for symptoms of gastrointestinal disturbance, any kind of a bloating, uh, the noises that the stomach makes. This is usually an indication that, uh, it's not sitting well with your with your GA tract and probably it's causing some kind of a serotonin release. Flushing is also a very good sign. Eating anything that causes flushing, probably shouldn't be eating it, or at least not on a regular basis. Yeah, we talked about all that earlier. Anything that irritates the intestine, you don't want that. So we talked about pectin, carrageenan, starches, and, and these excipients in medication. So this is what I wanted to end on because um, I, in the past, when I was seeing 
patients or clients virtually. I don't do this anymore. Um, one of the things that I found most impactful was having them stop all of their supplements that had anything in, you know, uh, that except like a pure desiccated organ supplement, which obviously I'm biased, but there's none of these excipients in what we make at hardened soil. But I've heard you talk about silicon dioxide, titanium dioxide, talc, talc. Um, you know, citric acid additives yeah. to these, um, to these supplements. Vitamin I mean, C. Vit- vitamin C, exactly, which can be from corn or other problematic things. So I just want people to understand that uh, supplements are not benign and, and the excipients in here are, are, are pretty significant. You want to you run with that for a little bit? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, because I just think for many people, they don't need these supplements. Uh, if you just eat meat and organs and fruit, you're going to be fine. You're going to get all the vitamins you need. And what you're, you're yeah. getting all this stuff that you're not even aware of, which is why I'm not a fan of this stuff. I mean, obviously, the number one factor for any company that's selling a product on their shelf life, right? You, you want to produce something that can last indefinitely and be bought whenever that client wants to buy it. So they will do anything possible to do that. So for the supplements, especially the ones in dry form, it's kind of easier because you don't have to add that many preservatives. But, you know, uh, anti-caking agents like silicon dioxide, the uh, titanium dioxide, talc. By the way, all these three, the, the, this trifecta they call, is present in virtually all pharmaceutical drugs. You take in any pharmaceutical drug in a tablet form, or even a capsule form, chances are it has one or more of these. Um, and I've looked at many of these pharma drugs that on the label. They list many of the artificial colorings that I mentioned. The allura red now is known to cause the, uh, this, this uh, inflammatory bowel disease condition. Um, also, several studies noticed that artificial colors are associated with hyperactivity disorder in children, ADHD. There's even a doctor out there. This, his entire theory is that this entire epidemic of ADHD we're seeing is just these children ingesting this candy and all these artificial things that are basically pumped full of, of, of chemicals that are psychoactive. Uh, he's saying, like, I'm not claiming they work well on the other, but I know children that don't eat these candies and they're basically related genetically to the children that they are, and the two groups are drastically different. Nothing can explain it except something in, like, in the environment, right? So, so, yeah, when you're getting these supplements, some of the supplements themselves are byproducts of a, some kind of an industrial waste and are really contaminated with heavy metals. Vitamin C is a very big uh, uh, offender in this in this category, um, as, as is citric acid. Both of these are added as antioxidants and preservatives, especially in juices. Now, of course, a lot of people say, "Well, I'm drinking the you know the juice for the vitamin C." Well, if it's present naturally, like in citrus fruit, right, then you don't need to add more. I mean, it's already got its own kind of like preservative there. But if you're drinking anything like apple juice, like grape juice or pear juice, you look on the on the back of the label, chances are it contains either citric acid or vitamin C or both. And all both of these are, are known to be contaminated because they're industrially produced. Many of them are coming imported from countries with like less than stellar safety regulation um, in this regard. I don't want to mention names because some people may get offended. But um, but also, malic, uh, I'm sorry, citric acid itself is now known to be implicated in the cancer process. Um, um, it's known that cancer cells overproduce the enzyme fat acid synthase and citrate synthase because they apparently depend on fatty acids for survival and they use citric acid, a metabolite of the Krebs cycle, to actually synthesize fats and promote their own growth. And conversely, they noticed, uh, doctors noticed that, uh, not doctors, but researchers, when they injected animals with small tumors with citric acid, it drastically increased the speed at which the tumors grow and metastasize. So citric acid by itself is probably not something you want to consume in large amounts. Even if it's pure, it's dangerous, but most of the case, it's not even pure. Uh, so look at the label, right? Um, and then for the, when it comes to the vitamins, um, very often they're contaminated again with heavy metals, but, but even without that, if you look at the excipients, you often have microcrystalline cellulose. 
Now, microcrystalline, it implies that the particles from which this is uh, this capsule has been generated are so tiny, they can actually get through the intestinal lining and to your bloodstream. Anything foreign that gets into the bloodstream, and correct me if I'm wrong, will likely trigger an allergic and or inflammatory reaction, right? Even if it's something tiny as like a yeah. vegetable capsule. Magnesium yeah. stearate, um, by itself benign, like as a formula, however, uh, uh, also known to, to ad- absorb into the bloodstream sometimes, especially in people with compromised b- uh, gut barrier function. Uh, what else? Um, so uh, the crystalline, the cellulose, anything else? Those are the main ones. There's probably others. Uh, oh, the, the modified cornstarch. Yeah. It's, it's usually done in such small particles that also reliably absorbs sufficiently to the bloodstream to cause a problem. So ideally, you want a product that if you look at the label, it says active ingredient in dosage, right? And then the, uh, usually it says amount per serving, right, as a total amount. And then basically it says basically the individual the individual amounts if it's more than one. You want the total amount. Uh, you want When you add up the individual amounts, you want them to equal the total amount. If they're not, means there's something in there. There's a filler, right? And more often than not, it's not a good thing, right? Uh, sometimes, uh, in, depending on the amount of the filler, they're required to list it, but not always. And since the pandemic started, FDA and USDA instituted the so-called um, emergency restriction amelioration on the producers. And now for many of the products, even foods in the market, uh, the, the vendor is not required to actually have the ingredients that are listed on the label. To me, that's, that's, that's catastrophic, but it's still in place. The emergency order has not been removed. And now you can have something that says coconut oil, uh, I don't know, beef tallow, blah, blah, blah. It's, in fact, it's peanut oil. So be very careful, right? And I guarantee you, it's, if it's happening for food, it's happened even more so for the supplements. So supplements should be just list the ingredients, and then underneath it, it should just say vegetable capsule or gelatin capsule, and that's about it. That's about it as far as I would go to ingesting a you know uh, synthetic supplement. Yeah, microcrystalline cellulose. Like just read your supplements, guys. You will be astounded at what's in there. And then, like I said, I think most of the supplements people are taking, they have no need for if they're eating a, a nutrient rich diet. And, and a lot of the supplements I think people are take are harmful. So, um, Georgie, you're a treasure. Thank you so much for your time, my friend. I know you've got to go. We'll have to do a part three because I want to talk about keto diets. I want to talk about cancer okay. and the mechanisms of cancer. I want to talk about reductive stress. So uh, all of you guys can look forward to that. Hopefully, I can wrangle Georgie into a, a third uh, podcast soon. Where can people follow more of your work, Georgie, and find you um, if they want to dig deeper into this stuff? Uh, best one is the blog, which you mentioned, I think, uh, in the beginning and several times, uh, heydu.me, H-A-I-D-U-T.me. And that one feeds into in my Twitter um, uh, handle, which is twitter.com slash heydu, same moniker. Um, and that's probably the best time, basically. If they want to interact, uh, I can interact through Twitter. The blog uh, gets updated. Anything that gets posted in the blog goes onto Twitter. Uh, and I've turned off the comments on the blog because it turns out it's a really time-intensive <laughs> thing to deal with all of these comments. A lot of them are spam, not from humans even, right? So the blog is just that. It's just presenting information, but interaction usually happens on Twitter and, you know, they can uh, we can interact more there. Um, so and that's it, about it. And the Hey Dude is H-A-I-D-U-T. Yes. Uh, on Twitter and then Hey Dude, hey dude yeah. dot me on yeah. Yeah. So the same the alias, one on Twitter, one on the blog. Cool. Thank you so much, my friend. I'll see you soon. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.